I'm really happy to be here this morning. Uh, it's great to be back at Portswood. It always feels great to come back here. Um, and the passage that we're going to look at this morning is from Luke chapter 1. So if you want uh, to turn to it um, in the Church Bibles, it's page 1025. I'm going to start with a question. So, uh, if you can, imagine that you're going to write a book about someone. doesn't matter who it is. And my question is, where would you begin? How would you begin uh, your book about the life of someone that you know? How would you begin the story? Where do most biographies start You see, I find it interesting that each of the four books of the Bible that tell us about the life that Jesus lived on earth begins in a slightly different place. Mark, for example, doesn't mention anything about Jesus' birth or his childhood. But it's interesting how he starts. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet... I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So Mark makes it clear that the beginning of the story is actually a lot sooner, a lot earlier than we would otherwise think. Uh, He starts by taking us back to the Old Testament to the prophet Isaiah, about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, and he says, this is where the story starts. And then when we look in Matthew's Gospel, he does talk about the birth of Jesus, but he begins his Gospel even further back than Mark. The first verse of Matthew's Gospel says this, a record, a, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and so on. So for Matthew, the beginning of the story goes right the way back to Abraham, maybe 2,000 years before Jesus was born. And when it comes to John's Gospel, he really goes back to the very start. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the Word was God. And a few verses later he says that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So that's how John describes the arrival of Jesus in the world. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So what about Luke? How does Luke begin his account of Jesus and his life on earth? Well, there's a if you look at, it's going to be great if you can keep your Bible open, if you look at just the first few verses, we have a short introduction where he explains why he's writing, he explains how he's put his story together, how he's gone about the task of writing about the life of Jesus. And he begins with the remarkable story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And that's what we're going to spend some time looking at this morning. You don't need me to tell you that 
Christmas is just a few weeks away. Today's the 1st of December, the first Sunday of Advent. And traditionally, Advent is a time for anticipation and preparation. It's a period where we're looking forward and getting ready for Christmas. And I hope that this time together this morning will in some way remind us of that, because this story is very much about those two things, anticipation and preparation, waiting, watching, looking forward to, getting ready, all of those things. And this story is one that, for most of us, is probably very familiar. And essentially, it's a story in three parts. So to help us stay on track, let me just suggest a title for each of the three parts, and then we can look at the story in a bit more detail. So verses 5 to 10 is where the scene is set. And then from 11 to 17, we have a marvellous message. And from verses 18 to 25, revealing responses. So that's where we're going. Let's start by reading just verses 5 to 10. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well on in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. So this is setting the scene. And as you just look again at those few verses, what is it that stands out for you in this first part? I'll give you a moment or two just to glance down again. What is it that grabs your attention? What is it that you notice as the scene is being set. The few things that stood out to me One is that the role of Zechariah, his family background, Elizabeth to his wife, is that he's, he's a priest. And that comes out from the start. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. He belongs to the priestly division of Abijah. Elizabeth's a descendant of Aaron. Aaron was the priest with Moses. And when it comes to going into the temple, he's serving before the Lord this is a rare occasion, in fact, and he's chosen by lot to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And this is, this is the custom of the priesthood. And what is a priest? What is the role of a priest? What is Zechariah's job? Why is, why is he there? 
And a priest is someone who represents the people to God and represents God to the people. And Zechariah is there partly to offer incense, but also to offer prayers. It's a time when he would have gone into the temple and he would have been praying. We've also got the description of Zechariah and Elizabeth, his wife. And I wonder what you make of this description of them, of their, of their life, of their, of their character. How do, you, how do you respond to what we're told? Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. It's not many people that we find in the Bible who have that sort of description. I can think of, of Noah. He was described as a, a blameless and upright man. Job as well. Right at the beginning of Job, we're told that he was a man who feared God and shunned evil. And we know that both for Noah and for Job, they were men of faith, but that faith was challenged in different ways. And as we go on reading here, we can see that for Zechariah and Elizabeth as well, faith was was a challenge. It was a challenge to keep believing in God because there's a but... They were a godly couple, a good couple, but they didn't have any children. They were childless because Elizabeth wasn't able to conceive and they were both old. So that's the situation. That's the way the scene is set. Let's move on now to the second part, which is this marvellous message. And let's read from verse 11 to verse 17 together. So just follow as as I read. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So again, let me ask you the same question. What, what stands out for you when you read those verses, when you look at those verses? What is it that you notice? Just take a moment to scan again those
There's obviously a lot in there. It is, a, it is a, an unexpected thing. The fact that Zechariah is in the temple is already, for him, an opportunity of a lifetime. It's probably once in his lifetime that he will go into the temple to, to burn incense and have that special job. But God has even more in mind for this moment. And what I like about what the angel says is how certain he is. So the affirmations here are that Zechariah's prayer has been heard, that his wife Elizabeth will bear a son, that this son will be a joy and delight, that many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. I don't know if you notice all those, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. There's no doubt about it. The message, the wonderful message that the angel brings is that not only are they going to have a child that they would have been waiting for for many, many years, hoping, anticipating, and up until that point the child hasn't come, but now the angel is saying, your prayer has been heard, it has been heard, this will happen. And not just that the baby will be born, but what this baby will be, what's going to be his life, and and what the angel talks about is going to play out over the next 30 years. So it's not just for the moment. And even in what he says, there's no no timing given at this point. He's not saying it's going to be next week or next month. Just that Elizabeth will bear you a son. And just as Zechariah and Elizabeth have been waiting a long time to have a child, so the nation of Israel have been waiting. It's been 400 years since the last prophet spoke. That was Malachi. And we can turn back Malachi's just a few pages before, right at the end of the Old Testament. And in this marvellous message that the angel brings... It's the promise that there's going to be another prophet. And uh, the very last words of the Old Testament are these. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So a prophet is coming, the fulfilment of what has been promised. And this is all very good news. This is, this is beyond belief. But there's also mystery there as well. Not everything is explained. There are still questions about what's going to happen. But then the third part of the story is the revealing responses. So let's read from verse 18 to verse 25. Having announced 
what is going to be. This is then the response. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well on in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. So once again, what stands out in this part? What do we notice from this third section of the story. It's obvious that Zechariah is going to respond. In a little while he's going to be left speechless, but for the moment he's responding to what he's heard. And his response is revealing, isn't it? How can I be sure of this? We might think this is a reasonable response. It's probably how we would respond in this most unusual of circumstances. But the reality is that Zechariah is a priest representing the people to God and God to the people. And he knows that this isn't the first time a couple who are too old to have a baby are going to share in that joy. And to me it's interesting that the story of Abraham and Sarah having their promised child in their old age is something that Zechariah would have known by heart. And even though he's been praying, and the people outside have been praying, and his prayer has been heard, still there's a gap between what he knows and how that affects his response. How can I be sure of this? I need more proof. I need something that will convince me. But he should have known. He should have been, if not ready for this happening, at least ready to accept the message and to believe it and to take it to heart and to rejoice at this good news. But instead, how can I be sure of this? The name Zechariah means... God remembers. And the name John means God is gracious. So even in the names of Zechariah and of the baby that's going to be born, John, is the reminder that God knows what he is doing, that he's at work, that nothing is left to chance, that it's not, it's not being gullible to take God at his word. 
And from the angel we discover that this lack of belief has consequences. It's not a fatal problem, but it does have consequences. So Zechariah just said, I am an old man. And the angel says, I am Gabriel. And as Zechariah would have known, it was Gabriel who spoke to Daniel when Daniel was questioning what was going to happen in the future. Gabriel was the angel that God sent to talk to Daniel, who also predicted the coming of the kingdom. And uh, when we come to Elizabeth, we also get her response, and her response is more positive. She says, The Lord has done this for me. He has shown his favour. He has taken away my disgrace. So what can we learn from all of this? What do we make of this story? What do we make of these responses? It's a remarkable story. It tells us that Christmas isn't just the story of one miraculous birth, but two miraculous births. And we know that without God's intervention, Elizabeth and Zechariah would never have had a baby. But this is who God is. This is what God does. So what about us? What implications does this have for us? For me, it makes me ask the question, what am I praying for? What am I looking for? What am I hoping for? What promises has God made that he's yet to fulfill? Because there's such a link in this passage, even though it's the story of Jesus and his life on earth, there's such a connection with the Old Testament at every line. And it's all about God saying what he will do and then fulfilling his promises. And there are promises that are yet to be fulfilled. The question is, are we living in the expectation of those promises being fulfilled or will we one day be caught out like Zechariah was? Because we just don't know what's going to happen. Zechariah didn't go into the temple expecting to have this experience with Gabriel, to hear this news. It was, he would never have thought it. But we have a God who acts in history and each day is full of possibility. Zechariah knew a lot about God, knew his promises, knew the stories. But when it came to it, his response revealed unbelief. How can I be sure of this? If we read on just a little bit further, we'll find Gabriel going to Mary and a very similar story, and you can contrast the two. Contrast Zechariah, who was a priest in the temple, with Mary and what she did when she had shocking news. But what about us? Luke tells us in his introduction that he's writing so that we can be sure and certain 
of the things that we've heard and been taught. When the angel brings his message, it's with assurance and conviction. It's the fulfillment of what God is is doing, and that fulfillment fuels our faith today. The connection between this passage and the Old Testament goes right from Genesis with the similarity in the story of Abraham and Sarah right through to Malachi in the very last words of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of that at this moment. And God said that he's not like us. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man, that he should change his mind. Does God speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And this is a great time of year to remember God's promises. But not in a vague way, but in a real, living way. What are we looking for God to do? What are we praying for? And the big answer to that question is for Jesus to come again. That anticipation of another, even greater day of revelation, a final day of transformation, a final moment to know and experience God before everything changes. So if it helps you, I'm just going to turn to to 1 Thessalonians and read a couple of prayers from Paul the Apostle who took this message and announced the good news to countless people. You don't have to turn to it, but let me just, just read what Paul prayed. May he strengthen your hearts <clears throat> so that you will be blameless and holy like Zechariah and Elizabeth in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. And this story speaks about John the Baptist coming in the spirit and power of Elijah Do not treat prophecies with contempt. This story is all about the fulfillment of prophecy, things that God has promised. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. And this is the prayer. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it.
Let's pray together.